You're listening to Baseline from 538. You're listening to Baseline from 538. You're listening to Baseline from 538. You're listening to Baseline from 548. 538. Damn it! <laughs> 538. Hi, this is Carl Bialik from 538. Welcome back to Baseline, the podcast that we're recording live at the U.S. Open throughout the tournament. I'm with Jane McManus, a writer for ESPNW. Welcome, Jane. Thanks. We both just watched a really exciting match between Serena Williams and Simona Halep, which mm-hmm. Serena Williams pulled out in the third set. Now Serena Williams is the final member of the final four of the women's field. She's filled out the semifinal field. What chance do you give her to emerge victorious? Well, I know that you're, you're a numbers man, Carl, so I don't want to disappoint here. So I'm going to say 82%. I think that that is the percentage that Serena Williams, the chance that she has to win this match. To win the title. To win so, the, oh, two yeah, more to win the title. I think, you know, the thing is, like, she's somebody who plays better as tournaments go along. And she's been playing pretty well. She, I mean, she was definitely pushed against Halep. There's no question in that second set. Uh, Halep really pushed her, and it was great tennis. And it just goes to show you that when Serena lets up just a little bit, there were a couple of double faults in that match. Uh, that somebody else can get in there, but you know she really she pushed it into a completely different gear in that third set. Yeah, and I, I agree that it's just a different Serena Williams late in tournaments. And our forecast, the five thirty eight forecast, is only giving her I say only kind of in quotes seventy three percent, which is on the one hand very high to win two matches because if you flipped a coin twice, you'd expect it to come up heads twenty five percent of the time. On the other hand, we're not taking into account that when she plays Pliskova tomorrow night. That's going to be the Serena Williams of late in tournaments, not early. Here's here's the stat on her in semifinals. She's won 14 of her last 15 Grand Slam semifinals, and in those 14 wins, she only lost one set. On the other hand, the one that she lost, I think we both remember pretty well. To With, Roberta Vinci. That's right. Here yeah. last year, she was trying to tie the all-time open-era Grand Slams record. Now she's trying to break it. She so, was also going for an, a calendar slam, yeah. which was a, which is huge and kind of like the the pinnacle of your career, right? We think of all of the greats when it comes to calendar slams, and Serena's won all four in a row, but not in a calendar year, even now. And she was facing enormous pressure, and Vinci played a great match, and she didn't get it done. Pliskova is such a different opponent than Vinci. She talked today after her win about what a similar game she has to Serena. Is it... Similar, but kind of the second-rate version. Exactly right. I mean, there's there's there really aren't any other players on the tour that have the power that Serena has, and even now with her first serve, she can just you know it's like bingo. She just has a couple free spaces with her serve every once in a while. She can pull them out, and there just aren't other players on the tour that have that. And and the other thing with Pliskova is I listened to that press conference and and heard what she had to say, and she is just a little bit maybe intimidated by. Serena Williams. And it would be hard not to be, right, if you're a professional tennis player. But I think that does come into play. Pliskova's 24 years old. It's a little bit younger. She's a different kind of player, but she does get frustrated. She talked about how she breaks rackets in practice when she gets frustrated. And, you know, she's going to have to really hold it together against Serena in order to be able to to not let the emotion get in the way. The later semifinal on Thursday is between Caroline Wozniacki, former number one, two-time finalist here, and Angelique Kerber, who's already made two Grand Slam finals this year and won the Australian Open. Caroline Wozniacki has some rumors swirling about her that she might be retiring soon. Her, her father gave an interview saying that 
she might end after this year. She might end after next year. And then she was asked about it. And she basically said, I don't really want to talk about that now. I'll let you know when I'm ready to talk about it, which is far from a denial. Do you think if she wins here, that means she'll stick around for a while? Do you think maybe on the other end, there's like some appeal to winning and stepping away like Bartoli did at Wimbledon, like Panetta did here last year? I think it'd be really hard for her to win here. So I think that's, you know, that's <laughs> Possibly the caveat a there. Point. Right. But, um, but I think, you know, she's been playing with house money this whole tournament, ranks 74th in the world now. She's had injuries. She was off the tour for three months dealing with those injuries. I would think she probably, before the tournament, thought, well, you know, if I'm just kicking around the WTA and I'm not really competing where I used to be and it doesn't really look the same to me, then, you know, she's had a good run, right? She's had a good career. But I would imagine when she gets home after this, you know, depending on how far she gets, but reaching a semifinal at least at the U.S. Open, I don't know that she was necessarily factoring that into the equation. And maybe she was putting off the answer to that because she realized that there's some new information that she needs to put in there. She's somebody who, you know, she had a good career, but it wasn't a great career. You know, certainly numbers-wise, she did have the top ranking. She didn't win here. Uh, I think that would always be kind of something. I mean, if she really does get to the point where she feels like, wow, I can really compete at that level again, maybe that is enough of a pull for her. Unfortunately for her, the reason that you said you don't think she'll win the title or probably even win another match is Angelique Kerber. And Kerber right now, especially with Azarenka and Sharapova out of the game for very different reasons, Kerber is really the the real challenger to Serena and also the real consistent competitor against the rest of the field. So she did lose early at the French Open, but here, Wimbledon, the Olympics, and the Australian Open, she marched on to the final. She lost only one set, and that was in her very first match in Australia in those rounds before the final. What do you think happened to her, and what do you think she could do if she does face Serena Williams in the final? Well, I think you're exactly right. I think she's the only player on tour who can beat Serena and, and really knocked her out of contention for another calendar slam right at the very beginning of the year, which is kind of, uh, I would imagine if you're Serena kind of disheartening to have gotten so close the year before and then to be out of contention immediately um, the next year. But, I mean, I think, you know, she's one of these players, Kerber, who she's so strong, she's so powerful, she's going for Serena's number one ranking and could very easily get it here if she outlasts her at the tournament. Um, and I think, you know, you need somebody like that, right? You need somebody who's, like Victoria Azarenka did for a few years, who could potentially be a foil, who offers some kind of competition. Um, and Kerber is somebody who this could be, you know, this could be where she really breaks through in New York this year. That would be something. And having the third major final between them would, would just be a great storyline and rivalry for the WTA. We're talking a lot about the women's game, and I think it's clearly the top story here with Serena Williams going for that record and being the greatest women's tennis player of all time, probably, and s still competing at the top. And yet, I looked around earlier in the tournament and realized something I probably should have realized years ago, that most of the people alongside me, including myself, covering this tournament were men. And I did some counting of my own. I asked the USTA, which runs the tournament, and it looks like something between 75 to 85 percent of the people covering the tournament in some capacity are men. I wanted to ask your thoughts on that and your experience going back to the first Grand Slam you covered being a woman covering tennis, both women's and men's tennis. So my first year was 1999, which was the first year that Serena Williams won 
the title as well. So, you know, she and I are like linked career wise. That's the way I like to look at it. Um, and you're also peaking now. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're both peaking now. And I'm not retiring anytime soon either. So good. there's that. Um, but I do remember like I, you know, I was covering a lot of high school sports and as a young reporter got the nod to cover the U.S. Open and I came out and I'd, I was really, I, I, I was, I was really overwhelmed because there were so many women from my point of view, covering it. And I think what it was is, first of all, the American press was sending more women to cover. And they were sending their top women. So it was like, you know, women, uh, you know, from the LA Times and, and you know, from from Chicago and, you know, Bonnie Ford, Lisa Olson, uh, Robin Finn, Selena Roberts. I mean, all of these real greats in sports writing were there. And, and you know, I could, I could pick their brains and ask them what I should do. So that was pretty cool for me. I also noticed that there were a couple of outlets that would send two people. And the reason that they would do that is because um, back when I started covering, the locker rooms were open, the men's and the women's locker rooms. And technically, male reporters could go into the women's locker room and vice versa. Practically, however, because so many players came from countries that didn't have open locker rooms, uh, this wasn't really practical. So what you know, Sports Illustrated did, for example, was they sent a, a you know male and a female reporter who would then go into the locker room after matches. And you know there were a couple of times where I was kept out of the men's locker room, for example, after Pete Sanford won and was doing a press con- you know a informal press conference in the locker room or celebrating. And um, and so eventually they closed them. So there's no longer that reason to do that now. But that was part of the reason there were so many women. But I do think you're right. Because now I was kind of surprised when I, when I saw those numbers, just how stark it was. And I think so much of it has to do with the international press. And that, there just aren't as many women internationally covering sports as there are sometimes in the U.S. And in New York, I think it's a little bit different, too, because there are a lot of women in New York covering sports. So those women are coming out to the U.S. Open every year, too. You, when you're not covering tennis, cover many other sports, including football, where there isn't really a women's version of the game, and other sports where the men's version gets most of the coverage and gets most of the revenue. How different is the breakdown by men and women of the people covering those sports compared to what we see when we look around here in the U.S. Open Media workrooms? Well, I'm looking forward to those stories from you, Carl. But um, the (laughs) one (laughs) – yeah, coming to come. Uh, But the one thing I noticed, like, for example, when I started covering college college, uh, basketball, like, there were very few women – at the final four, there were very few women at the Big East tournament. There were like, I was definitely much, um, I had much less company in those press rooms than I do here at the U.S. Open, which is, you know, to me, if you've got that number, that breakdown of, of press credentials, male, female at the U.S. Open, I would be very interested to see what it would be in other sports because I don't think you'd get anywhere close to it. I mean, maybe it's something like Super Bowl Media Day where you have general reporters covering the events and not just like the hardcore sports reporters. But when it comes to women covering sports, even now, we're definitely in a distinct minority. Do you think that affects for tennis, for instance, how the women's game is covered relative to the men's and how much? Yes, absolutely. I noticed when one of my first years that when Anna Kornikova was playing that um, there was a publication that always put the adjective leggy in front of her. And <laughs> leggy, because she, unlike other players, had legs. Had legs. And I long mean, ones. Unbelievable. And legs are a real asset in players, tennis. Right. <laughs> so, so I, you know, so like, I don't think a woman writing about tennis would ever use a you know, sexualized adjective to describe someone or, you know, and, and that was the, that was the difference. And that's something I noticed. And I think when you have more women covering though, 
um, more women are pointing that stuff out too. They're kind of like, oh, that's kind of gross. And, and that kind of becomes part of the conversation. So that's why I think, I mean, and there, there are many reasons, right? You want to have different reporters because they're going to see different slices of things. Not to completely appropriate a tennis term, but <laughs> there are, but, but that's, that's the idea, right? Like if you have women who notice something about the, a woman's game or, something else, something that they see, they're just going to see it in a little bit of a different way. Maybe they have a different association. Maybe, uh, you know, you never you never know, but you're, they're certainly paying attention. They're looking in corners that perhaps the male reporters aren't and vice versa. So it's good to have, you know, a little bit of everybody on your staff and certainly to have, I think, within the, the press pool cohort to have different people so that all of those stories can get seen and heard. And you follow the men's game and the women's game, as do I. Mm -hmm. And there was a very exciting men's match earlier today when Kena Shikori upset Andy Murray in five sets, 7-5 in the fifth set. A lot of people saw Murray as the co-favorite with Novak Djokovic. Murray had just won Wimbledon, won the Olympic gold. Kena Shikori is very exciting prospect, but then again, he's already 26. He's sort of past being a prospect. And do you do you think he can finally break through here? He came so close two years ago. Yeah, that's right. And and lost in the final to Marin Cilic. Um, I I think you know I I really was listening to the crowd today, uh, watching that match out on Ash, and the crowd here loves him. And I think they re, you know that was such an interesting final, right? Because Kani Shikori and Marin Cilic, like not your not the big four, not the people who are going to be selling a lot of tickets, and. And I, re I remember talking to us covering the Jets at the time, and I remember talking to two Jets players, and they were like, could you get us tickets for the open final? And I was like, well, you know, it's Kanye Shikori and Marin Chilich. And they're like, yeah, we do. We know those guys. So, you know, a lot of affinity between sports, I think, even at the lower levels. Um, so I, I really do think that that he could break through. It'll be interesting to see how he recovers from the match on Wednesday because it was there was so much energy in it. There was a, a rain delay while they closed the roof. There was the controversy about the noise in the crowd, uh, you know, all the way to a fifth set, broken twice in the fifth set before ending up pulling it out. So there were all of these things that go into it, which take a lot of energy. And, you know, his his thing has been, well, can you use that much energy and then have something left for the next match? Yeah, when I did the first episode this year of Baseline, one of the things both guests said is it's such a big deal to win seven matches over two weeks. And a part of me was thinking, well, that's kind of what people say. But then I think in practice, when you see a match like today's or you see Luka Pui's upset of Nadal, and then you think about what it takes to follow that up playing another tough player a couple of days later, it is a big demand. And it's something that very few people in the men's or the women's game seem to be able to do. And, and, you know, we mentioned Roberta Vinci earlier. She had such an emotional win over Serena Williams, taking away the calendar slam, and that was in the semifinal. And then, she, you know, she ended up um, playing in that final and just wasn't wasn't all there. You know, you could really tell that, that her victory had been beating Serena Williams at the U.S. Open and that that, you know, seemed to have the intensity and the emotion and the – uh, that, that, a, that a victory would, that a championship would, and that, um, you know, and that was it for her. She kind of faded out of that final, and, and that was that. So so I, I, it is, you know, I, I mean, I think for people who don't play professional sports, it's hard to, you know, we see them, we watch them. It's not hard to watch a match one night and then watch another match the next night. That's not very difficult at all. But, I mean, if you can think back to a time when you were competitive, I, I played competitive roller derby, and sometimes we'd have to play back-to-back 
bouts and it was really killer. And that's not even at the close to the level where they're playing, you know, the the pinnacle of their sport against the best players in the world. And you really can't have any sort of letdown or someone is going to find a way right into you. We cynics at 538 would say, well, it's really just that Finchie was a worse player than her opponent in the final and she'd done well to get there or that Nishikori was worse that, that tournament than Chilich. But I think watching those matches, you really saw sort of a deflated player, like hard to get up again after hitting a high like Nishikori did upsetting Djokovic, like Vinci did upsetting Williams. Or Pui upsetting Dahl. I mean, but the thing is, like, if you look at those on paper to begin with, no one's picking Roberta Vinci over Serena Williams to begin, you know, to start. So the numbers that you're looking at in terms of, you know, who has a better first serve, you know, who's hitting fewer unforced errors, that doesn't always come out and play. I mean, that's why they play the games, as they say. But it is really true that you can't just look at a, the statistics on a sheet. It might, you know, if they played this match seven times, they might, you, the expected outcome might happen six out of the seven times, but there's also the seventh time where the underdog is going to end up getting that match. Yeah, and we don't ever give anyone a 100% chance. We're just giving Serena Williams 73 or 82 in your case. So <laughs> the other three have a chance. That's right. That's right. It'll be interesting to watch. Thank you so much for joining us, Jane. Uh, thanks for having me anytime. That's it for this episode of Baseline. Thanks also to our producer, Jorge Estrada, with additional help from Jody Avergan, Tony Chow, Chadwick Matlin, Ryan Mantell, and Joe Sykes. We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, be sure to check out our ongoing coverage, including our constantly updating U.S. Open forecast at 538, as well as coverage on ESPN.com and ESPNW. And subscribe to Hot Takedown so you don't miss an episode. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com with any comments or suggestions. Thanks. Thanks